All right, so hey, a couple of weeks ago, we started in Daniel chapter 1, right? And we said that, and we saw Daniel kind of rise up, you know, through exile and captivity, become a trusted advisor to the king. But then we asked the question, well, now, wait a minute. I mean, this was the country that had gone in and decimated Jerusalem. This was the country that had murdered people there and carted them off as captives. Why would, how did Daniel know it was okay to serve that king and serve in his palace? And you might argue, well, he had no choice. He was a prisoner. He was a captive. But that was not true. Daniel knew it was okay to do because he had a blueprint. And that blueprint was from the prophet Jeremiah, in particular, Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah 29, that prophet told Daniel and his friends and all of the exiles, look, I want you to pray for this city. I want you to love this city, the very city that came and destroyed the city that you love. I want you to love it. I want you to pray for it. I want you to get involved there. I want you to lead there. I want you to become involved in the arts. And I want you to become involved in all the things of that city, right? And in Daniel 2, where we're going to be today, we're going to look, we're going to learn from a king. He was the most powerful, uh, yet also ruthless, uh, and and one of the greatest kings to this point in history. Had more uh, subjects than anybody, more countries at his disposal right now um, Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful king he was also a brutal military dictator Uh, but all that aside I think we need to be honest about um, the way we view Nebuchadnezzar and the way that we view Daniel I think sometimes we're willing to gather in a church like this on Sunday mornings and kind of pay spiritual homage to Daniel right because after all he was courageous he was true to his values and we're going to see that time and time again he was true to Torah he was true to the God of his Jewish roots and that's commendable and so we we gather in church and we sing his praises but the reality is the rest of the time Monday through Saturday most of us aren't pursuing the life of Daniel we're pursuing the life of Nebuchadnezzar Right? Because he's the one that had all the wealth and all the power and all of the success. And so while we walk into church on Sunday mornings and talk about how great Daniel was, we spend the rest of our lives chasing the kind of life that Nebuchadnezzar had. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is the CEO, right? He's the successful entrepreneur, the elite statesman of his day. I mean, he drives the six-figure car. He wears the hand-tailored suits. He lives in the Hollywood mansion, right? He mingles with celebrities. He's followed by the paparazzi. He's on the cover of Time and People and, you know, Inside Babylon, right? Women wanted to be with him. Men wanted to be like him. And this is the life that we chase six days a week if we're honest right it's that life of control and power and wealth and prosperity and success that we all want which brings us to Daniel chapter 2 and our first real look at this very powerful yet very ruthless king So what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of walk through the first part of this story together. I'm going to make some brief observations as we go, and then we're going to ask the question, what can we learn from this powerful and wealthy king? So if you will, follow along with me starting in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, who is this king, had dreams. 
His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. So they make a reasonable request. They say, King, tell us what the dream was and we will interpret it for you. And the king pushes back and says, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. Here's what he goes on to say. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was, in other words, no, 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 you're going to tell me, not only are you going to interpret the dream, you're going to tell me what my dream was. Uh, He says, if you do not do that, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. So the king is anxious. He's having trouble sleeping because of this dream, right? Uh, just because of the dream and like this is Daniel's worst case scenario it's going to become here in just a moment and we'll see why but here's what happens the astrologers kind of argue among themselves for a few verses and then they come back to the king and they essentially say to the king look nobody's capable of doing what you're asking Here's how they say it in verse 10. The astrologers answered the king, there's not a person on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among human beings. That is, except for our God. Our God lives among human beings. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death also. Now this is like a worst case scenario for Daniel, right? We saw just last week, I mean Daniel's just been promoted. He's now among the ranks of the wisest of the wise of Babylon. And right out of the gate, there's a death decree put out. Like, you know, there's a contract for, put out on Daniel's life right away. He's going to be killed. So this is a huge, huge deal, right? I mean, when the king issues orders that there's going to be cutbacks, what he means is arms and legs, not departmental cuts. Right? This is how ruthless this guy was. And so what looks like a stroke of amazing, uh, the grace of God in Daniel's life, suddenly Daniel's in this place of impending disaster. His life is in danger. So we're going to pick this up in verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. We're going to come back to that. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them, this is so important, listen, 
he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends not, might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So during that night, God answered the prayer of these four Jewish young men. God showed up and revealed to Daniel not only the interpretation of the dream, but the details of the actual dream itself, right? And so the story goes on in chapter 2 to tell of how Daniel goes and explains the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, who then not only rescinds the execution order, but actually gets on his knees and praises Daniel's God and acknowledges Daniel's God as the God of heaven. And if you're familiar with the story, right, if you know the chapter, you know there's a lot of study and a lot of scholarship and a lot of biblical prophecy that walks around the interpretation of this dream itself. The part of the chapter that I haven't read yet. Now listen, we're not going to talk a lot about the dream today. We're going to save that for next week as we finish up in chapter 2 and move into Daniel chapter 3. And what's so interesting to me is when most people teach Daniel 2, they teach the back half of Daniel 2. They don't teach this front half. But what, but what I believe the Lord's led me to do today is we're actually going to camp in this front half before we talk a lot about the, con, the, the content of the dream. But we're going to make a long story short. I'm going to tell you basically what the kingdom what the dream was about Uh, that dream it's about the kingdom of God as the one true eternal kingdom that will one day break into pieces and replace every human kingdom and empire that have come before it right empires like Babylon and the great empires that would follow Um, so so I want us to just ask what can we learn from King Nebuchadnezzar today. And the first thing I think we can learn, uh, I'm going to hold off, but I want to tell you my hypothesis for Daniel chapter 2. If you want to push back, that's fine, but I'm going to make you wrestle with this. Uh, here's the statement you, I want you to wrestle with. You ready? You ready? Okay. Almost uh, the desire to control is at the root of almost all worry, fear, and anxiety. Now, you may push back, you may not believe that, and I think that's fine, but it's so important to me that you have to wrestle with this that I want to say it again. The desire to control is at the root of almost all worry, fear, and anxiety. And here's why, because every one of us know this, right? We know that there are things in this world that we can control, but we also know, on the other hand, that there are things in this world that are beyond us, that are outside of our control, that we can't control. And isn't it interesting that the most powerful and successful man in the world is deeply troubled and cannot sleep? I mean, has anybody here ever had a night where you tossed and turned and you couldn't sleep because of worry or fear or anxiety? Anybody ever woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and your eyes are just open and your mind's just racing 
Now, I'll tell you why this happens. It happens because in that moment, you're recognizing that there are things in your life that you cannot control, and so you're freaking out, right? Because we want to be able to control these kinds of things. So we, we have trouble sleeping when we start bumping into this truth at night right? The desire to control always leads to tremendous anxiety and fear. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, he was anxious and awake because of his dream. See, in that day, dreams were incredibly significant. If you were a pharaoh or a king uh, in the order of Nebuchadnezzar, it was believed the gods communicated to you via your dream. So it would have been extremely important for him to call on his astrologers, his enchanters, his diviners, right, and ask them to interpret his dream. Uh, but why does this matter? Why was he so anxious? I'll tell you why. Because dreams were the one thing that Nebuchadnezzar could not control. Dreams were the one thing he could not control. Uh, dreams were the one thing that reminded him that even though he was the most powerful, most influential, wealthiest man in the, on the entire planet, that even he could not control his fate or his future. See, dreams were what we might think of as beyond, beyond the line of his control. So if we think about control in our lives, there's almost always a line somewhere, right? And we all know this. We know that there's a line between the things that we can control, right, and the things that we can't control. And now the line can sometimes get a little blurry. The closer you get to, the, to, to between the two, sometimes it's a little harder to tell. So here's what I'd like us to do. As a church, we're going to play a little game. It's called the control game. Now, in the control game, I'm going to throw out a topic and you tell me whether that's something you can control or whether you can't control. Okay? Fair? All right. So here's the first one. Children. Can you control your kids or no? Mm. We're, we're, we're divided, right? And I'll tell you why we're divided. Because some of us have little kids, and if my children are five years old, they can be controlled, right? But what about when our kids are 15? What about when they're 25? Yeah, you get the idea, right? The older our kids get, the less control that we have over their lives. So, uh, we're, so, because all children grow up, we're going to put kids in the things I can't control camp. So, hey, listen, if your kids are little and they're at home with you now and you can control and corral them, well, God bless you because it won't always be that way. I'm just saying, okay? All right, how about health? Is your health something you can control or something you can't control? Yeah, maybe a little bit in the middle, right? I mean, you can eat right, you can exercise, you can get a good night's sleep, you can take your medication. So there are things that you can do, but ultimately, will any of those things, will getting a good, good night's sleep keep you from a cancer diagnosis? No, right? At the end of the day, we can't ultimately control our health, right? Okay, how about your spouse? This should be fun. 
Wait, there's wide agreement. I thought I saw some women shaking their heads. All like, oh, yes. Come on, ladies. Didn't, didn't you think when you were going to marry uh, your, your man, that didn't you think, you know what, I'm going to marry him and I will change him, right? You know, I'll help him learn how to fly right. And then you walk down an aisle and <laughs> your man wasn't changing, was he? Right? Yeah, no, we can't control our spouses. But so much marital difficulty gets traced back to the desire to control our spouses, right? It, really, it, it just creates all kinds of anxiety and stress. And how about your boss? Can you control your boss? Yay or nay? Yeah, we're getting to know you cannot control your boss, right? Are you getting the idea that most things are landing firmly on this side of that line? But so much of our energy, the reason we experience so much worry and angst and fear and frustration is because we want to take this line and we want to move it as far as we can over this direction, right? So we want to absorb as many of the things as we can that we can't control, and we want to begin to control those. Okay, how about your work environment? Can you control, is that in your control or, or out of your control? Work environment. Yeah, mostly out. There's probably a few things you can do. You can make recommendations to your, to your boss. You can work, you know, you can uh, work to create a new culture. But yeah, most of that you can't control. And then what about the future, your future and world events? Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's firmly over here, right? But the problem comes in when we try to own stuff that's over here. See, that's, what, that's the rub, right? Because we want to push the line this way, and so we want to own stuff over here that we have no business owning, right? And it, it just creates all kinds of anxiety. So this is why we're freaked out and stressed out. And many of us are totally unaware of how much time and energy it takes to try to control these things right here. It's exhausting, but it won't keep us from trying to control our circumstances. Sometimes we try to control other people, right? Now the strategy here is usually manipulation or arguing others into seeing our point of view, kind of dominating them or marginalizing you know, their point of view, right? So we try to move the line through how we manipulate both people and circumstances because we want as much territory on this side of the room as we can get right now centuries ago in the lonely bedroom of a babylonian king the most powerful man on planet earth even the most powerful person in the world knew that he could not control his future or his fate and it scared him senseless and he couldn't sleep. So let me ask you a question. What is it that's keeping you awake at night these days? What is it that's causing you to toss and to turn like the king? 
right? You may see, it, it may seem like you're powerless in the face of that, right? Because, hey, you don't have any control. Or like you're just simply a victim of your circumstances. But that does not mean that you and I are helpless, friends. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that we don't have choices that we can make. See, Nebuchadnezzar had reached this line, the line between what he could control and what he couldn't control. And every time a man or a woman bumps up against that line, it's an invitation. And do you know what it's an invitation to? It's an invitation to change. Because fortunately, one of the things that you can control, maybe the only thing you can control, is who? It's you. It's you. Unfortunately, generally speaking, the last thing I want to do is change me, right? Generally speaking, the last thing that you want to do is change you, right? But we try to move this line through how we either manipulate our circumstances or manipulate others. But at the end of the day, there is nothing more than the unsettling realization that we are not in control and we cannot control our future or our fate. See? So Nebuchadnezzar has the opportunity to change something, to do some things differently, right? Which kind of leads us to the second lesson of this story, and that's this. Maybe what really needs to change, maybe what we really need to begin to control is ourselves, our attitudes, our words, our actions, right? Maybe that's where we need to begin to focus. Maybe what really needs to change in your life and mine is me and you. See, we can spend a ton of time trying to move this line and control other people and control circumstances, and God knows Nebuchadnezzar did that better than anybody. It's how he got to where he was, right? But in this moment, the one thing Nebuchadnezzar isn't interested in doing is changing. And we see this very clearly in this story. Think back for a moment to the way that Nebuchadnezzar seeks out help. He calls together all of his astrologers. Remember, and he says, hey, I demand that you not only tell me the interpretation of the dream, but you tell me what I dreamed. And if you do it right, I'll reward you. If you don't, I'm going to kill you, right? So when they can't do it, whose fault is it? It's not his fault. It's their fault, right? So he's going to make all of them pay what he's really doing is seeking counsel without giving up control he's asking for help without admitting that he's helpless and he's refusing to humble himself he continues to rely on his own judgment his own power and his own control and he will not work he will work on everyone else he will threaten everyone else but he will not work on himself he just doesn't see the need you know, there's a study in the field of psychology. It's called behavioral economics. And uh, a while back, a guy in this field wrote a book. He was a book guy by the name of Daniel Kahneman. He won a Nobel Prize for this, by the way. And Kahneman suggested that people, shockingly, don't always make rational choices. That is, and I quote, these are his words. He said, people... When I say people, that's like you and me, right? People have a huge amount of confidence in their own judgment, even in the face of evidence that their judgment is wrong. 
And so what he's saying is that we're all good at recognizing when other people make bad decisions. We can point that out almost immediately. Oh, that was a bad decision. But we're going to struggle when it comes to evaluating the validity of our own decision making. We're not going to see that. So we're going to naturally assume that we always know what is best for us, right? And that um, we're always going to naturally assume that we should therefore stay in charge of our lives. Because after all, I know best. Other people make bad decisions. I just didn't consider all the facts, right? I mean, we're just good at this. And so I wonder if like Nebuchadnezzar, when we seek advice from others, what are you looking for? Uh, I'll tell you what we're usually looking for when we go to people for advice. It's what Nebuchadnezzar goes to his advisors for. We may be looking for support, for compassion, for understanding, but I'll tell you what we're not looking for. We're not looking for somebody to look us in the eye and say, you're wrong and you need to change. That's not what we're looking for right now listen there are things in all of us that we need to change that God calls us to change and changing ourselves thankfully is on this side of the ledger it's one of the things that we can control what about that problem at work that's driving you crazy is it really just about your boss or that colleague or that situation or maybe what really needs to change in that situation and the only thing you can change in that situation is you or that problem or that relationship or that you know your marriage I mean I'm sure you could list all the ways that your mate your spouse that he or she needs to change right but what about you how do you need to change and grow I mean, is it that they won't listen and they won't change and they won't learn and they won't do better? Or maybe what really needs to change is you. Maybe what God is inviting us in this season where we are bumping up against the line as hard as I've ever seen in any season of ministry, in our culture, in our society, we are bumping up against this line of what we can and cannot control, and people are freaking out. And maybe, just maybe, what God is doing is He's inviting us into a season of change. He's inviting us to change. See, Listen, you can try to control all the things you would desperately want to control about future and family and finance and all the rest, and you will still be left with the same cycle of fear and frustration and anger and blame, pointing the finger at everyone else, just like Nebuchadnezzar was. You know, But there's freedom in saying, no, there are things in me I need to offer to God. There are things in me that God needs to change. There are things in me that I need to allow God to change. And the good news is that when we bump up against this line, culturally, individually, and we get that invitation to change, instead of trying to seize control, there is another way to take hold of life right? See, while Nebuchadnezzar is still sulking and threatening, trying to manipulate and control people, right, to get the control back that he wants, Daniel shows us a very different way of taking control. And it's counterintuitive, 
and it's countercultural, which leads to the final observation we need to make. Listen to me. There is a life-shaping, eternity-changing power and freedom that come from something called surrender. The opposite of control is surrender. So maybe when we bump up against this line of things we can't control, maybe the alternative, instead of trying with all of our might and energy, right, to push that line and just working it and working it, and it's so exhausting, isn't it? It's so exhausting, the energy that this takes. Maybe instead, we're just called right to like drop the rope and say, hey God, it's not me, it's you. I trust you. You're in control. And that's good enough for me. Years ago, when I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, I had a professor whose wife had cancer, and she lost that battle with cancer. And in the middle of that battle with cancer, this professor was saying to a group of us in his class, he said, you know what? I don't have any control over what happens to to the woman that I love, to my wife of 42 years. But I know the one who is in control, and that's enough for me. That's enough for me. Is it enough for you in a season like this? Or are you just trying to push that line and manipulate circumstances and people to you know, convince yourself that you have all the power? See, Daniel shows us an entirely different way. What does Daniel do? Daniel gathers his friends and he gets down on his knees and they begin to pray. He doesn't try to push the line. He doesn't try to coerce people. The way that Daniel takes control in this story is he gets on his knees and he prays to the God of heaven. And here's what he says. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises others up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Do you know what Daniel's prayer celebrates? It celebrates surrender. It celebrates letting go. And saying, God, I'm not in charge of the universe, and thank God. So today, I'm going to resign as CEO of the universe. It's not my job to control all the circumstances and people in my life. It's yours, and so I'm going to trust you to do it well. Listen, if you can get to that place, you will be amazed at how well you will sleep at night. When you trust the one who is in control right there is power when you surrender but not only is there power when you surrender there is freedom when you surrender i mean come on admit it isn't it exhausting trying to keep everything in your life under control you we all expend so much energy and effort you know trying to push this line move this line but there's great freedom because suddenly the world doesn't need you know, to snap to attention whenever you walk into the room. You know, you no longer have to manipulate circumstances and people, which is so nerve-wracking and exhausting and overwhelming. Listen to me, I'm going to say something. 
that's so important to know today in the middle of riots and unrest and change and social distancing and mask wearing and global pandemics Jesus is on the throne he never stopped being on the throne one of the messages we see in the book of Daniel over and over and over again like clockwork is these events that seem so overwhelming and so random and out of control no God never stepped off the throne and he has not stepped off his throne today Jesus is on the throne Listen, you know what the most powerful moment in Jesus' life was? It wasn't the moment that he walked on water. It wasn't the moment that he uh, cast a demon out of somebody. It wasn't even the moment that he restored sight to the blind. You know what it was? It happened in a garden where Jesus said, Not my will, Father, but yours. Even Jesus had to surrender. So what about you? And what about me? What about us? What about us? How about we all resign as CEO of the universe and begin to trust our Savior? You know, Colossians, we're going to spend a lot of time in Colossians 1 over the next several months. We're going to come to it periodically again and again and again. Today we're just going to read through three verses. It's Colossians 1, 15 and 18. If you really want three passages that are like so amazingly Christ-magnifying, there are three in the New Testament. There's, um, there's Colossians chapter 1, there's Hebrews chapter 1, and there's Revelation chapter 1. So if you just want Jesus to get bigger in your sight and in your mind and in your eyes, you should just like read through those three chapters again and again and again. I'll say it so you can write it down. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Revelation chapter 1. Here's Colossians 1. Here's how he describes Jesus. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and he is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdom, rulers, authorities. Wait, you mean God knows Jesus is on the throne no matter who wins the election this fall? Is that what you're telling me, Brad? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. This is actively. In other words, the way you would translate this in the Greek is he is always holding all creation together all the time. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning. He is supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is to have first place in everything. Everything. Every word, every decision, every choice, every action. He is to have first place because he is preeminent. He is first. And it's not about you and me. It's about him and how beautifully our stories get woven into his great, vast, overarching, long, eternal story. He's the, he's the rescuer in this story. Not you, not me. So will you let him rescue you? 
He died in your place for the forgiveness of your sin. And all you have to do is reach out and say yes to that. And take hold of that. And bring it into yourself. That's part of what it means to surrender. Now I'm going to say one more thing. I'm going to go ahead and call Pastor Brandon up. He's going to start getting ready. In a moment we're going to respond. But I want to say uh, just one more thing. Listen, not only is surrender the way to freedom... Not only is surrender the way to power, but surrender is the way people enter into the kingdom of God. Now next week, we're going to look a little more closely at this dream and how this rock, which symbolizes the kingdom of God, just smashes to pieces all the reigning kingdoms of this world, right? And, and how and why that's so powerful. But you need to understand, surrender is entrance into the kingdom of God. The way people enter into the kingdom of God is through surrender to Jesus. That's how people get that power. It's how they find that freedom. Only through surrender to Him. So will you? Will you surrender to Jesus? Will you assign him first place in everything in your life? Because he belongs there and he is worthy of that. Amen? And he demonstrated his worth. He demonstrated his love for you and me. His kindness, his good intentions towards us. By living and breathing and humbling himself to death, even death on a cross so we can trust him we know he has our best interest at heart so here's what i'm going to do i'm just going to pray for you and me as we're bumping up against this line in huge ways right now that we'll have the just the character and the integrity to surrender let me pray for us together god um we just give you thanks and praise that you're on the throne that you haven't lost control for even a moment, and that you are trustworthy, and that everything we're enduring, that a a crazy, changing uh, world, that you are still uh, seated before all of that, and that we can rest and find hope in you. So God, would you help us to be men and women who surrender as a way of accessing the kingdom of God, Uh, the thing that will never fade, never uh, fail. We just ask and pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, so here's how we're going to respond together. Brandon's going to sing a song about surrender, a great song about surrender. And as as he's singing that song, we're going to respond in surrender to Jesus together by taking communion. Now listen, as we take communion today, we're doing it a little differently, right? So we kind of want you to space a little differently than usual. Uh, You're going to notice when you come to receive communion, it's all in one packet. So the wine and the bread are all kind of packed together. Normally you grab bread out of a plate and then you take wine. It's all together just in the interest of safety and looking out for one another, right? But when you take that, listen, I just want to remind you, if, if, if you've ever taken communion out of one of these, we're not doing it because it tastes good. We're doing it to remember our Jesus. We're doing it to remember our Jesus. 
to remember his act of surrender on a cross so that he could be exalted to the name that's above every name. So when we drink the cup, we're remembering his shed blood on our behalf. When we eat the wafer, we're remembering his body broken on for us on our behalf. And how do you how should we do that? You do it with gratitude and you do it by saying, Jesus, if you would die for me, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live for you. So you surrender. So I'm just going to invite you to see communion today as a way that you can surrender. Uh, we're going to do it pretty much the same plus distancing, right? We're going to come up the sides or to the back, and then we're going to go back to our seats in the middle or around the sides. Listen, if you want to come and take communion up front as a family here on the altar, you're welcome to do that. Uh, but no matter how you do it, do what you do to remember Jesus' sacrifice for you. So come and receive. The altar is open.